welcome to New Planet, a podcast where we inform and enable a sustainable lifestyle. Well, after a brief holiday hiatus, we're back, and hopefully better than ever. How's it going, Xander? Hey, Aiden, it's going pretty well. Um, Happy New Year. Thank you. Merry Christmas. Yeah. We gotta. We missed all of them. Yep, Merry Christmas, did, but... happy Hanukkah, happy holidays, <laughs> yeah. happy New Year. So, hopefully 2020 is a new year for us, you know. NEU as a neutral, gotta get it going. But yeah. I'm excited for this episode. Let's yeah. let's get into it. Sure. Um, so today we got a guest we're really excited about. Uh, it's a pretty interesting story how we got to the point of interviewing him. Uh, in short, I guess he grew up in a city in Brazil that I traveled to by coincidence uh, nine years ago, and we never knew each other until actually a few months ago when he and his fiance reached out to me. We were able to meet up in California, where I'm living right now, and then get to know each other a little better, but uh, I'll let him introduce himself any further. So welcome to our podcast, Renan. Um, why don't you give us, I guess, a quick personal background, like how you, where you grew up, like how you ended up studying in, in the U.S. and how you got to this point. Yeah, guys, uh, thanks for having me. It's pretty exciting to be talking about this topic that I'm always very interested in. Um, so I grew up, as you mentioned, in uh, Puerto Vallarta. It's a little city in the middle of Brazil, literally in the middle of nowhere. Um, so ever since I, 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 I was growing up and I was very interested in, you know, um, reusing materials, recycling, and, uh, mostly because of my mom, because she has this mentality of the three R's that I call reuse, reduce, and recycle. So to anything that you apply, um, and in Brazil, it's pretty spread out mostly because of the economy, you know, you kind of need to save money. You kind of need to reuse things, which end up having a huge impact, a positive impact in the environment because you don't use as much materials as we end up using here in the US. Um, so anyhow, I grew up in this kind of environment and then I went to grad school and I ended up going towards uh, chemical engineering because I really enjoyed chemistry. Um, and then halfway through my undergrad, I started realizing that like the career throughout uh, chemical engineering would be kind of not really my uh, cup of tea because it's you know oil and not really caring that much about the environment more about money more about producing things um, and although I love the chemistry and everything behind it it wasn't really my you know I didn't really want to be involved in that type of environment to a certain extent so I um, ended up receiving a scholarship actually to go to Italy where I decided to study environmental engineering for a year as a specialization during my undergrad. And that's when things start getting more uh, intense for me about environmental engineering and thinking about waste materials more in the science-based and water treatments. Uh, so then I came back to Brazil, finished my undergrad in chemical engineering. Um, because there's a lot of overlap actually between chemical engineering and environmental engineering. Environmental engineering is basically a, an applied chemical engineering to a certain extent. Um, and just two years ago, I um, got into UCLA to do my uh, grad school, uh, my master's in, um, in environmental and water resources. And now I'm on my way through my 
PhD in environmental engineering. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. And I know that uh, from cool. my yeah my experience being in Puerto Vallarta where you grew up, it's like an insane accomplishment to be able to like yeah. come from there and then end up doing a PhD in the U.S. Like that's super cool. Yeah, no, thanks. It's a uh, yeah, it's it's awesome, and I definitely want to bring that this mentality back because I know there is a lot of um, people there that could could do the same. You know. Yeah, of course. Um, so yeah, well, that's awesome. Uh, so I guess when we get in, so getting into the interview um, and kind of more specific stuff about what you're working on, we mm -hmm. can still start more general, I guess, and talk about um, stormwater management. And you know, your work is with green infrastructure and stormwater management, more specifically with stormwater biofilters. Um, mm -hmm. But I guess firstly people probably need to know like why stormwater management is such a big issue and like why that requires people to go and like do research about, you know, biofilters. And, um, so why do you think, or why is, uh, stormwater management such a serious issue, like in urban areas and, and whatnot? Mm -hmm. So, um, <clears throat> stormwater is, you know, basically water that we need for everything. We need to produce things. We need to drink, we need to survive. So if you think in history, uh, where water was, like if there was a river, people were like around the river. If the river right. disappeared, people would move somewhere else. So we cannot live without water. Um, so stormwater is one of the sources that we have for, you know, it's a cycle of cleaning water. It evaporates through the ocean or river, it forms, you know, the clouds, and then there is the rainfall. And this rainfall is very clean. Um, despite a few par particles in the air or like a few stuff, it's a very clean water. Um, but now we have urbanization. So what happens with these rainfall is that it comes clean, but then it starts gathering all these like dust from the roofs, um, nutrients from like yards or fertilizers and pesticides. And it's it, these, all these chemicals and bacteria and everything else, it ends up in water bodies like um, in rivers or lakes or under the ground because once the rainfall falls and like washes off our roof, washes off our streets, um, there is two ways for the rainfall to go. It can either infiltrate throughout the, the earth, uh, surface of the earth and then ends up at the groundwater or it can become as a runoff um, which it travels throughout the surface all the way to a lake or a river or the ocean. So now because of urbanization as well as development of the society, um, we have not just the water, the cleaning water coming into these water bodies, but actually carrying a bunch of contaminants. And for an example, if you pollute groundwater, uh, groundwater is actually the source of drinking water for more than half of the population of the US. So if you pollute that groundwater, you're basically saying that half of the population is not going to have drinking water anymore. Right. So it is important to manage and treat this stormwater before it carries all these contaminants into groundwater or lakes, for an example, that there are recreational activities, you know, people are swimming and then there's chemicals there that can be harmful. Um, so that's the point where it's important to treat and manage stormwater to um, increase water quantity and quality throughout the world. Uh, right. And it's a topic that it has been emerging throughout the few years because, um, you know, people are more careful with water. So we need to make sure to treat it. 
So, like, what are the main pollutants that stormwater picks up along the way? Like, probably from cars, I'm assuming, and, and just, mm -hmm. yeah? Yeah, so um, it depends on the area, right? If you are in an urban area, you know, roads have a, a bunch of half metals coming out of the car. Mm -hmm. It has um, a bunch of pollutants out of the combustion of the, the fuels. Um, so there's a lot of bacteria around um, where we live because, you know, we have dogs, we have animals. Um, yeah. There is a lot of dust coming out of rooftops and like chemicals or like particles leaching from rooftops. So everything is going to be um, right. transported by the stormwater. And so then uh, I know that what another one of your focuses is on how global warming and climate change impacts that. And so what is what does climate change and global warming do to make that uh, stormwater runoff and just stormwater management more difficult, I guess? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, we've been experiencing um, climate change. It, it's a huge topic, right? There is temperature, yeah. there is water, there's wind, there's ocean rising, there's many topics. But um, talking more specifically about climate change and water or stormwater directly, there is a link between rainfall, right? Um, everything comes from the rainfall. And what is happening with climate change is that um, the rainfall, like the wet season is gonna, it's becoming even more wet. Meaning that, let's say that we had a rainfall last year that rained like 10 inches in one day, that it's a very extreme rainfall. Uh, maybe this year it's gonna be 12 inches. So it's becoming more and more intense in the rainfalls. And um, if you have more water, you still have the same facilities to treat this stormwater. So um, you need to improve the performance of the stormwater facilities in order to treat more water in the same period of time. So that's the trick uh, part with stormwater facilities is because, you know, with sewage of water coming out of uh, houses and stuff, you know how much water people are using because, you know, everyone uses, I don't know, 10 gallons per day. So you know exactly how much you're going to treat. With stormwater, you know, for three months you don't have water, all of a sudden you have 12 inches of water and you're like, oh my God, how do I treat this? So that's yeah. the trick uh, part to implement stormwater facilities. Gotcha. <clears throat> and so then now really more specifically on what you are studying and working with are stormwater biofilters. And so that's uh, one of the methods to manage stormwater, I guess. So for those of us who don't already know, I mean, Xander and I kind of did a little bit of basic uh, layman's research on biofilters, but what exactly is a biofilter for people who might not know? Um, so a biofilter is basically a filter, but made with uh, biogeomedia, or most importantly, with waste geomedia. So some type of waste material that would not be used, we put inside of this filter to treat the stormwater. And the main reason is, you know, the stormwater is going to be transporting these pollutants to either groundwater or lakes or um, rivers. So we put a biofilter before this water reaches these water bodies. So it treats and like remove these pollutants. So it keeps the quality of the river pretty well. Um, because if we don't have the biofilter, this these um, chemicals are going to be transported. Uh, right. So a biofilter is basically this filter where water flows through it and 
it's built with waste materials, um, or most of it is waste material. Uh, so it's a pretty sustainable approach to treat to treat the water. And so when we were looking up like pictures of biofilters, they're basically just like it seems like there's a pretty common model, I guess, for a biofilter, which is kind of like a depression or something, and then you put fill it with with those like media, the I don't know sand or like other waste materials and and plants, and so it's kind of just like a little like depression where water just sits there and then it slowly filters through and it's right exactly yeah exactly so basically let's say if you have a road and then well a road is pretty tricky but like in the middle of you have a runoff right coming from the water like you know pretty much in that area if it rains all the water is going to be converged into like a channel so you put at the end of the channel you do a depression where you put you know, sand to help water infiltrate, but you also do some other materials like biochar, which is like a sustainable type of activated carbon, because this biochar is gonna absorb these contaminants and hold a bunch of contaminants. Then you have plants on the top, so these plants can uptake these contaminants and transform these contaminants into, you know, use them as a source of energy or anything else. So we remove the contaminants and already give a destination to the contaminant throughout plants and microorganisms that might be present there. But there are many types of waste materials that you can add, like biochar, iron filings, uh, wood chips, um, sand, and so on. Compost as well is one that is very well used. So where would we find biofilters in urban areas? Are they just on the side of the road or is it like on the sidewalk, like in these green spaces or like, what would, where would you visualize a biofilter in your everyday life? Um, so a very easy way to spot a biofilter, it's mostly in parking lots, um, because a parking lot is an area where it collects a bunch of water and nothing's going to infiltrate. Everything is going to become a runoff into somewhere, right? Um, so we usually put biofilters next to stormwater or uh, parking lots to collect this water because it's very polluted water. You have cars, you have people walking around, dogs and stuff. Um, so that's one. Another one would be uh, on sidewalks, you know, um, between the sidewalk and the street. Usually you have like a green area instead of just having like a, a grass area, you put this type of biofilter that it's a little bit lower so the water can flow into it. Um, so yeah, these are the most um, common places, but there's a lot of biofilters in agriculture as well, agricultural land, because they use a lot of uh, pesticides and uh, fertilizers and they need to remove that before it goes into the river. And the, the best way to do it with biofilters are, let's say the most like sustainable way to do it. Um, so those are the places that you could spot it. So this is like uh, something that, I like came up just in my head as I was looking at pictures of biofilters um, and seeing like kind of what they look like. Are there, there are like the uh, artificial biofilters that people create, like you plant plants and like you put a specific uh, material underneath them, like sand or charcoal or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but are there like natural ones that just, that are already there in like wetlands or something that already filter water? Or is this like specifically an artificial thing that, that humans that we make um, and then put places? That's a very interesting question, actually. Uh, we are trying to mimic 
the nature. Like, there is nothing better as a filter as the nature. If you look at the uh, surface of the earth, you know, like, everything's removed mostly, most of the time. So it's a very good filter. And it's a biofilter, right? Because it's a natural filter. Um, so we try to mimic these conditions. Um, but, you know, the surface of the earth, you have certain... Um, you don't know what is in the surface. You basically have soil. So what we do is that for certain areas, we are targeting targeting certain contaminants. So we end up using a certain type of material that would go well with that contaminant and remove that contaminant. So there are many biofilters, but it depends on the type of water that you are treating. You might want to change it, but it is based on natural systems, basically. As you mentioned, of a wetland, a wetland, it's pretty much the same approach, but you have, in a wetland, you just want all the water to be there and being treated just by being there because of the microorganisms. Um, right. With a biofilter, you don't really have this pounding. Uh, you have just water flowing through. Hmm. And so, like, at the bottom of a of a uh, artificial biofilter, I guess, you have, like, sometimes... Because I think it depends what the purpose of the biofilter is. Like I remember, you, I think you said that sometimes the water passes through a biofilter and then just goes back into the groundwater supply. Um, but you could also have like uh, a way for the water to reach the bottom and then be, uh, I guess, taken out and used for different purposes. Yeah. So that's another application that it's being well used, which is you know direct reutilization of water. So you put a biofilter and you have an under drain be uh, um, behind the biofilter. Um, and then this water, you know, you can direct this water to a river or to a cistern where you collect the stormwater to use mm. in your house. Um, so, yeah, that's another application that is well used. But there is some, um, you know, you're not removing everything and then you're putting this water back into uh, your house, into your lawn, you know. So um, reusing stormwater is very tricky um, and people need to be aware of that. Um, most important is whenever you use this biofilter before going into a river, it's not that the water is completely clean, but the river is going to finish, like do the the final treatment to the water and then the water is going to be clean, you know. Um, yeah. But it's used like that as well. Gotcha. Um, cool. Well, then... And okay, well, we're going to narrow it down even more because you're studying stormwater management, you're studying biofilters, but you're also studying more specifically the resiliency of biofilters with regard to like climate change and, and wildfires, which is really cool. So, um, yeah, what effects, what factors affect the resiliency of, of biofilters? Like what makes a biofilter more effective and what can kind of reduce its productivity, I guess? Mm -hmm. um, so biofilters, they... They're called bio because they are living filters, right? You have a lot of microbiome and a lot of microorganisms there that are plants that they, we need that living organism to have the best performance of it. So what happens with climate change now is that whenever you have a rainfall, it's a very intense rainfall. So things move super quick and microorganisms, they are not quick enough to remove the contaminants. So that's one effect of climate change. Whenever you have a high, very fall, uh, fast rainfall, your biofilter um, loses its performance, or at least part of it, because of this water passing through. 
On, on the other extent, um, it's when you have dry periods. So in the past, we would have like two months without rain. Now we're having like five months without rain. And what happens when there is no water? As I said at the beginning, like people move out or like people die. And that's exactly what happens with a, in a biofilter. Uh, the micro, microbiome or the microorganism or the plants, if you don't have water, they're going to die or they're going to reduce their performance. So after five months without rain, whenever it comes the a new rainfall, they are not, the, the microorganisms are not expecting that. So they are not fully active. They are not going to remove things. So it's a trick environment where you don't want too much rainfall. You don't want too less of a rainfall. You kind of want to manage in between. But that's why I study the design of these biofilters of how these effects of like intense rainfall or dry periods, how can I mitigate those effects by designing a more resilient biofilter? Um, and that's one of my studies uh, with fungi, um, which is um, it, it performs better than bacteria in certain environments. For, for an example, fungi can survive for longer without water. So if we have a really long dry period, it's more likely that we're going to have fungi there than bacteria. Um, this is a pretty generic statement, but pretty much in that sense. Um, and the other project that I've been working on is uh, with electrochemical, uh, supply, supplying electricity, because electricity is basically energy, right? So when this first rainfall comes after a dry period, all these microorganisms, they are kind of weak, let's say. So you supply some extra energy to the system so it can comes back to the performance as hmm. you didn't have the dry period before you know so it's kind of like a tricky way to it and it's not a direct energy it's the system energy um so yeah those are the ways that i'm thinking of um um like manage this mitigation of climate change and water quality using biofilters so how do you measure the efficacy of the biofilters are you measuring things like bacteria concentration or nitrate, or does it really depend on the type of filter that you're making? Um, so we usually measure the performance based on removal. So we create these biofilters in the lab um, using literally a PVC pipe, and then we mix these different types of media inside the PVC pipe. So imagine that that's something that it's we place it vertically, and then we deliver stormwater on the top. This stormwater passes through the filter and we collected it, the stormwater on the bottom. So we inject contaminants on the top and we measure how much is coming out of in the bottom. And then we see how much is being removed. Um, not just that, but we also see um, the remobilization of contaminants. So maybe the contaminants are just being removed, but if you pass two months without rainfall, those contaminants are gonna start leaching into the system. So that's something else that it takes into consideration uh, when we wanna identify the performance of the biofilter. Um, but it's mostly removal, right? Like the overall, it's how much is being removed, how much we are adding and how much is being removed. That's the biggest picture. Yeah, that's cool. So that's like kind of a day in the lab for you is you're like just injecting stuff and testing different make, I guess like, I don't know, the ratios of materials and whatnot and, and yeah, strategies. so yeah. Uh, right now, I'm focused more on writing because I was um, submitting or like writing a bunch of papers. Um, mm -hmm. But a, a usual day in the lab is that I get there at nine and um, 
because I work with natural systems, we kind of need to time it. Um, like every two days, there is a rainfall, for an example. So every two days, I'm there. I'm, I go to a nearby creek. I collect Rio stormwater, and then I go into the lab. I do some process with the stormwater, and then I have all of my columns there. Um, let's say 12 columns. Then I start injecting stormwater on the top and collecting it on the bottom. And this process just of um, injecting and collecting takes like four to six hours. And then once I collected everything, then I'm gonna process and analyze all the uh, samples. And, um, and that takes another day uh, to analyze everything for depending on the contaminants that I'm um, choosing. And then after two days, I'm already back to collect more stormwater because there is another experiment to be done. So it is whenever you're working with natural system, you try to mimic sort of, you know, the natural and it needs to be very time uh, sensitive. So, yeah. yeah, that's awesome. OK, so then I think this is the moment Xander and I have been waiting for. Um, but you already you already mentioned it a little bit, but using fungi in biofilters. Um, I think fungi have gained like huge popularity recently. There's like their ability to do so many different things has become, has just come to light. And I think their importance in just the global system has become more realized. Um, so what is their importance in biofilters and what have you learned about them in your research? Um, so fungi, first of all, it's, I, I was actually doing some literature review yesterday and I found this cool article just on the internet that says how big a fung the fungi is the biggest or the largest living organism on earth. Right. Um, and I think there is a, these fungus found in somewhere on the West coast. Um, it's in Oregon. That it's, oh, it's in Oregon. Yeah, exactly. It's like 3.8 kilometers or like 4.2 <laughs> miles long. So imagine if you can have that in a biofilter, literally your whole biofilter is going to be full of fungi. And like, if you have a pretty extent, a pretty big biofilter, you just, you know, start with a fungi in one place and that fungi is going to go everywhere in the biofilter. So it's pretty easy to manage, right? You have a bunch of microorganisms um, treating the water. On the other hand, um, we have how fungi to some extent, some extent, it's better than bacteria to remove certain contaminants. So for an example, bacteria um, to remove nitrate, there's a process called denitrification. Um, and bacteria, it just removes this nitrate if oxygen is not present. So it needs anoxic condition because if oxygen is present, it kind of inactivate this bacteria or the bacteria prefers to consume the oxygen instead of consuming the nitrate. So, and these in a biofruit is pretty tricky conditions to achieve because imagine you don't have rainfall for five months, everything's gonna be oxic. There is oxygen everywhere because there is no water to create a submerged layer without oxygen. Um, so all these bacteria are gonna be inactivated. But fungi on the other hand, it can remove the same contaminant but in oxic conditions. So it doesn't require anoxic conditions. Uh, so even if the oxygen is around, fungi is going to be like, yeah, I can remove this nitrate. I can remove this other contaminant that it's like NTO. So there is a bunch of advantages of using fungi over bacteria. But uh, my one of the uh, um, research questions that I'm working on is that 
you don't want to have only bacteria, only fungi. They actually need to coexist. So you need to have both of them to, to have the best outcome or the best removal. So that's one of the research questions that I'm going to be testing throughout this quarter that I'm designing the experiment to see. Um, I'm going to test how much bacteria remove, how much fungi remove, and how much both of them remove when they are coexisting in the same system. So um, <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Super cool. There was this one, so like I read, I read the intro to your prospectus. I didn't read the whole thing, you know, but mm. uh, <laughs> I didn't expect it at all. It's like 80 plus pages. <laughs> yeah, no, I read the intro to get a better idea of what you're, what the work you're doing is. Um, but there was, when you're talking about fungi in the prospectus, it was a sentence that was, that was, it was this one. Furthermore, if fungal hyphae conduct ions or charges, they could provide the network needed to deliver electrons from external power sources in order to catalyze redox reactions. So I don't understand every word of that, but <laughs> um, I get the main idea. And are you essentially saying that like fungi can conduct electricity and then that can be used in biofilters? So um, that's what we wish we could find. <laughs> uh, and that's, we're still going for it, but based on you know the cells or like the formation of the cells of the fungi it's most likely it's not going to conduct electricity but people you know you can change fungi and it could conduct electricity or there could be fungi in the world that could not conduct uh, could conduct electricity and um the most likely or like the the best option that we have in mind right now is that this fungi can conduct just a little bit of electricity, just like a tiny bit, and that would be enough already. So that's what we are um, thinking of. You know, it's a, a it's a pretty big project, you know, because involves so many parts and so many things to decide. But um, because imagine if fungi is the biggest living organism, it can provide this little bit of electricity everywhere in a biofilter, and that electricity can be um, converted into energy to that biofilter, to those microorganisms, and then it's going to increase the performance. So, yes, I want to find a fungi that conducts electricity, and yes, it's very hard. <laughs> That's so cool, though. Um, okay, well, that was well, that was pretty much the questions I had about your specific work, but um, we wanted to give you a chance to, like, bring up anything that we don't know about if there's anything specific about your research or exciting that you want to bring light to and share because i'm sure you obviously you know you know way more about <laughs> this this subject than we do so i'm sure we have <laughs> some stuff no um no i think you guys touching in like mostly everything i think it's uh water and like storm water and all this management regarding water it's very important to bring this concern to a to the public, you know, and people actually be aware of that because that interferes, water interferes in our life as any other thing. Like fuel, it's like nothing near water. If you don't have water, that's the biggest of the problems. So it is important for us to pay more attention into stormwater management because that's a big part of what is polluting our rivers and our groundwater. And it's a type of water that we can reuse. Um, so yeah. Um, I think that's the biggest message, you know, people, please be more careful about water, using water. Don't wash your cars every day. There's no need for that. Uh, <laughs> you know, just like close your, you know, whenever you're taking a shower, like 
try to do in five minutes, you know, all these little things, it's actually, it's little for us, but if everyone does it together and like treats, pay attention to the big, to the big problem together, we can actually make a change, you know? Um, so yeah, water is life. <laughs> yeah. Are you, I guess, optimistic that we're going to be able to better manage our resources? I mean, like there's the degree to which we can like individually make a difference and, you know, well, I mean, individually and co then collectively by doing the things that you just mentioned, but also, I guess, pushing your representatives to, because, because for example, when it comes to biofilters, that's not really something that an individual person is going to go out and like create their own biofilter. Probably that's more like a municipal thing where you go and you talk to your city council or something and mm -hmm. you say, Hey, like we want biofilters installed in our urban areas. Like, let's do that. Um, like, I don't know. Are you optimistic that we're going to be able to like manage our water resources better? Yeah, a hundred percent. But um, even in your house, you can create your not your biofilter, but um, there's a bunch of different types of. We end up talking mostly about biofilters, but there are many types of green infrastructures, and one of them is called rain garden. So in your house, you basically collect your water from your rooftop and stuff, and you create this little rain garden where you direct your rainwater to that garden and that water is treated and then it ends up going to a water body. So there are little things that like people in their own houses can do, which is, you know, it's a pretty, it's a project that you need to do and stuff, but um, it's more about creating the awareness and like the public kind of like looking at it and like politicians looking at it and being like, hey, this is a very sustainable way and it's important to have. So um, for sure, it's very important to like spread out the word and everyone be aware. Here in US, there's a lot of uh, process already going on. Um, in developing countries like Brazil, there is a lot to be done uh, and there's a lot of opportunity. Uh, so yeah, if anyone is hearing us from Brazil, go for it. <laughs> Yeah, I know when me and Xander were talking about like who was listening to this, we had like several listeners from Brazil. I think that's through <laughs> oh, really? my uh, through my Instagram following, possibly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's so cool. <laughs> um, but so like, there's that individual action and like what you can do personally, and that needs to be balanced, I think, with like also holding. For example, I know that there was just an an article that I read about how um, a Chinese company essentially went into oh god i want to say australia and a town in australia ran out of fresh water because this this company was drilling for water and just like taking all of their uh, like groundwater uh, like aquifer resources and stole all of their water and so giving these like private companies the ability to own water and like own a like a human right essentially like i think would you agree that it needs to be balanced with i guess not allowing things like that to happen while at the same time having your own personal like water stewardship at home and in your in your town or city i guess yeah i think the biggest problem whenever you put something in a private um, um area is that you're gonna limit who can access that you know that's yeah. how it is for all the world so water is such an important resource that if it is in private hands that's gonna damage most of the people, I would say, because just can afford, can actually pay for it. So it should be a public, you know, um, yeah, a um, human right, essentially. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. No, that's for sure. Um, and then I guess the last question I had was, um, what consequences do you think are essentially inevitable at this point? I mean, 
there are actions we can take to mitigate what's going to happen, but we know, I think, that things are going to get a little bit worse, at least before they get any better with regard to climate change and, and water scarcity. So what do you think, what kind of consequences do you see are just, you know, unavoidable at this point? Um, I mean, my area is mostly about water, so that's the area that I can mostly talk about. Um, there is there's a lot of negative things, but they are manageable, you know. Um, we need to think ahead of time and identify the problems. For an example, whenever we have a lot of water, we're going to have flooding, you know. Um, how can we uh, design a bunch of biofilters so this flooding is minimized because biofilters are going to help water infiltrate, for an example, or green infrastructures, um, or designing of the houses, for an example, have more green areas where water is actually um, infiltrated instead of discharged into the ocean. Um, so I think there are, you know, problems that we're going to face uh, regarding water, like lack of water is going to be probably the biggest one. Um, but also the excess of water, because the lack of water, people can move. The excess of water, it happens in one night, and then it's a hurricane. It's something that destroys a bunch of things. Right. So I think both both are hard, but the excess of water is even harder. Yeah. Cool. Well, I think it's about time to wrap it up there. Um, thank you so much, Renan. That was incredibly interesting i thought that was <laughs> yeah, awesome seriously. and i <laughs> i think i speak for not only xander and i but our listeners that when i say like we i appreciate the work that you're doing um and your dedication to like helping uh mitigate these effects because we need all the help we can get i think in terms of climate change and global warming it's, it's gonna be a very i don't know uh, like a herculean effort by all people to kind of mitigate those effects so thank you yeah for sure thank you guys for having me of course yeah. um I think I'm a little more optimistic now about water. Thanks, Renan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, as for Xander and I, check out uh, podcast Instagram at New Planet. Feel free to email any suggestions or comments to newplanetpod at gmail.com. And as always, I'm Aiden Hirsch. And I'm Xander Kitt. Thanks for listening. See you next time.